Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. Well, as we continue our series in the book of Revelation, we're going to be in chapter 7 today. But before we read it together, let's just very quickly recap some of what we saw last week. If you remember, We sought to answer the question, is everything going to be okay? And as we worked our way through chapter 6, we found ourselves confronted with a picture of the world that sadly resonates with all of us. A world overwhelmed with war, conflict, famine, scarcity, plagues, persecution and death. This was the reality of the world back in the first century and has continued to be the case in every century since. And... There's nothing to suggest things are going to get any better as we look into the future. So, is everything going to be okay? No. In fact, from an earthly perspective, probably things are likely to get a whole lot worse. But what we've been seeing in Revelation is how it also lifts the lid or pulls back the curtain and enables us to glimpse things not just from the earth's perspective but from the perspective of heaven and what we saw last time was that in the midst of the chaos in the world God is still in control he has a purpose that is being perfectly worked out and there will be an end to all the pain and suffering so is everything going to be okay well for those who put their hope in Jesus ultimately yes it is And for those who don't know Jesus, the fact we're still waiting for the end to come does provide an opportunity to turn to him before it is too late. Because frighteningly, the chaos in the world right now is merely a foretaste of the judgment to come for all who reject this offer. And so, in light of all of this, there's this question posed right at the end of chapter 6. Remember the question? We see it in verse 16. They cried to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And here's the question. Who is able to survive? That is the question we should all be asking if we believe in the day of God's wrath. If we believe that we will face him on judgment day. If you think that Judgment Day is at least a possibility, you ought to be asking, who is able to survive? Really, it's a natural question whenever we face any kind of real trial. In the midst of the global pandemic, it was the question we were all asking, wasn't it? With the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, the potential threat of nuclear war, it's certainly going to be the uppermost thought in a lot of people's minds. Then there's the winter fuel crisis, the cost of living situation facing many of us that's raising very serious concerns over our ability to survive. The small businesses looking at their accounts, trying desperately to balance the books. There's a fear that they won't be able to stay afloat. Will they be able to survive another year? And whatever your politics The current mess in our government has led to almost daily rumours, hasn't it, of how long certain individuals are going to survive in power. Whenever people are faced with any kind of trial, it's a natural question to ask. Who is able to survive? 
And I'll suggest it's the most crucial question we need to consider if we believe there will be a judgment day. Now, of course, a lot of people scoff at that idea, don't they? And yet Jesus gives us no doubt that it is a reality. And the revelation he gives to John goes on to describe it in pretty graphic detail. God's judgment is a terrifying thing. And when it comes, the question is, who will survive? And that is the question to which chapter 7 is the answer. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Revelation 7. Then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds so they did not blow on the earth or the sea, or even on any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east, carrying the seal of the living God. And he shouted to those four angels, who had been given power to harm land and sea, Wait, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. And I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. 144,000 were sealed from all the tribes of Israel, from Judah 12,000, from Reuben 12,000, from Gad 12,000, from Asher 12,000, from Naphtali 12,000, from Manasseh 12,000, from Simeon 12,000, from Levi 12,000, from Issachar 12,000, from Zebulon 12,000, from Joseph 12,000, from Benjamin 12,000. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and every and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white, ro white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God, who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings. And they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground and worshipped God. They sang, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the two four elders asked me, Who are these who are clothed in white? Where do they come from? And I said to him, So you are the one who knows. Then he said to me, These are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their, their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. That is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. For the Lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living, life-giving water and God will wipe away every tear from eyes. So the question is, when calamity comes, when pandemics happen, when wars break out, when the economy collapses, and when Judgment Day finally arrives, who will survive the day of God's wrath? And here's the answer that we get given here in chapter 7. Ready for it? Here's the answer. Those who are sealed. Who's going to survive the day of God's wrath? Those who are sealed. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, at the beginning of the chapter, John sees four angels holding back the four winds from blowing on the earth. This is probably just another way of describing the four horsemen that we were introduced to back in chapter 6. If you remember, as the seals on the scroll are removed, they unleash dreadful destruction on the earth. But here we've got four angels restraining these four winds of 
destruction. If you like, they're pressing pause so that all of God's people can be marked for protection in the judgment. It's quite the contrast if you think about it. Where the opening of the seals leads to judgment, the believers have a seal placed on them for their protection. Now, can anyone think of another place in the Bible where God's people were marked for protection? Yeah, that's right. Very clear parallels, aren't there? With the, the night, the death angel went throughout Egypt, killing the firstborn sons. If you remember, God told Moses what the Israelites needed to do to be protected from the judgment. Their homes had to be marked by the blood of a lamb. And God promised, didn't he, that when he saw the blood, he would pass over their houses. They were marked out for protection and were spared. The same thing happens in Ezekiel chapter 9, which perhaps we know slightly less well. This is the occasion when Jerusalem is about to fall to the Babylonians, that they've invaded, their armies have surrounded the whole city, and in around about 587 BC, the city was ransacked and many lost their lives. But before it happens, the Lord said to his servant, walk through the streets of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of all who weep and sigh because of the detestable sins being committed in their city. The context is God's people have largely abandoned him, that they've tragically adopted pagan lifestyles, they're worshipping other gods. But at the same time, there are some people, just a few people in Jerusalem, who are really grieved by the way that God's not being honoured. So they're weeping, they're sighing. And God says, I know there are some people who remain faithful to me. So go, put a mark on their foreheads. And when the destructive angels passed through the city, they didn't touch those who had the mark. And I think those are helpful illustrations, helpful pictures of what's happening here in Revelation. It's as though God is putting a dollop of wax on our forehead and stamping it with his name. They are mine. It's not a visible sign, can't be seen by us, but we're told elsewhere in the New Testament that the Lord knows who are his. Building on this whole idea in Ephesians 1 verse 13, interestingly, we're told that when someone becomes a Christian, they are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's like the work of the Spirit in us provides evidence that we belong to God. Later on in Ephesians chapter 4, we're told that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, for salvation on the day of judgment. Now just to be clear, to be protected from harm certainly doesn't mean to escape from hardship in this life. Far from it. First believers who read the book of Revelation, as we've seen in recent weeks, were already facing dreadful persecution. They're being marginalised, slandered, even killed for their faith. So Jesus isn't saying, if you're marked, you won't face any trouble. He's saying, if you're sealed, you'll be left standing in the face of judgment and all the trials to come. That's what really counts, that you overcome, you conquer, you persevere until the last day. So in answer to the question, who can survive? We're told the ones whom God has sealed, those who belong to him. And reassuringly, John then sees into heaven and discovers that the ones who God seals, they made it through. It worked. 
It was a success. It's this vast and varied crowd. But it's not everyone. We're told in verse 4 that the number of those sealed is 144,000. Now, just to say, I don't think that is an actual literal number. It's a symbolic number. Just like Jesus is described, isn't he, as a lamb, but isn't an actual lamb. He isn't covered in wool and doesn't eat grass. It's symbolic of the fact he's the Passover sacrifice, so those sheltered under his blood are protected. And I think in the same way, 144,000 is a symbolic number. If you remember, there were 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Testament, there were 12 apostles. And if you know your times tables, 12 times 12 makes... That's right, 144. And apparently, I have to take my word for this, but apparently 10 was a number associated back then with completeness. So if you multiply 144 by 10 by 10 by 10, the sense here is of completeness being amplified, multiplied, underlined. As Nancy Guthrie helpfully puts it, this is the complete number of the Old Testament people of God who looked forward and put their faith in the promised Messiah, combined with all those believers who look back at the cross and resurrection and put their faith in Christ. It's like everyone's accounted for, and they're all sealed for protection. It's a vast number. But again, just to stress, it is not everybody. I'm guessing you probably didn't notice this when the names of the 12 tribes were read out earlier, but... If you look at the list, something is ever so slightly strange here. Uh, for starters, as well as Judah being first on the list, despite not being the firstborn, there's also one tribe counted twice. So both Joseph and his son Manasseh, they make the list, but Joseph's other son Ephraim misses out altogether. And then there's another tribe, one tribe, who's missed out completely. Uh, anyone know which one? That's right, Dan isn't on the list. You would expect him to, be. he's not. Now, why is that? What on earth is being communicated here? What's the point? Well, if you know your Old Testament history, you won't need me to tell you that when the 12 tribes split into the northern and southern kingdoms in 1 Kings 12, the northern kingdom had no temple. And in the absence of a temple, it wasn't long before golden calves were put up and worshipped in the tribes of Dan and Ephraim. Idolatry led these tribes away from God and they never came to repentance. And so, as a result, Dan and Ephraim are removed from the list. They were part of Israel, but not really part of them. They did their own thing. They followed their own path. They turned their back on God. And so they're not there. I think John's making the point here that not everybody who is part of the visible church on earth will prove to have received the mark of God that is given to all his true followers. It was true in the days of ancient Israel. It's also true in Jesus' day, wasn't it? Now, the 12 apostles, there was one who was actually an outsider, Judas. He betrayed Jesus. He was excluded from the people of God. We won't see him on the last day. It's also true in the first century. Remember from the letters to the churches earlier on in Revelation, there are people claiming to be believers who will be found to be fake on the last day. And it's true today too. 
on the last day as we look around. I think there'll be a whole lot of surprises. There'll be people there we never expected to be there. And there'll be people we thought would be there who aren't. Now, as we move on, what John sees next is a vast crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. Which, if you think about it, seems to contradict what we've just seen, doesn't it? On the one hand, there's 144,000. On the other, there is a crowd too great to count. It's like you can't have it both ways. Is it able to be numbered or unable to be numbered? But as we've been seeing in apocalyptic writing, different rules seem to apply. John's speaking symbolically here. Both images tell us something important about these sealed people. To quote Andrew Sack, while the numbered lists of tribes tells us that the number of those sealed is complete, this great multitude tells us that the number of those sealed will be vast. So putting all of this together then, from the beginning of history, God's people are sealed. And so despite the winds, the horsemen, the disasters, the tragedies, the pain, the suffering that's to come, they will be kept safe. Destruction may fall on the earth, but ultimately the church is indestructible. Fast forward to the end of history, we're shown they have been kept safe. The total number stand in front of the throne of the Lamb which I think is intended to be reassuring for us, but actually is anything but. I mean, it's great, isn't it, that a vast number will survive, but what if we're not part of that number? Like, how can we tell if we are sealed or not? So really, the all-important question is, how do we know if this includes us? How do we know if we are among the ones who will survive? Well, let me give you four quick pointers from this chapter before I finish. First of all, we're told in verse 10 that salvation belongs to our God. That's the cry, isn't it, of those multitudes around the throne at the end of time. Notice they're not saying salvation belongs to me. No, they're on the other side of the final judgment and can see how the only reason they possibly made it was because of God. You know, the longer I'm a Christian, the more convinced I become that if my salvation depended on me, I'd have blown it a million times. Which is why it's a huge relief that it is God who gives salvation. It's God who seals us. It's God who preserves us until the very end. So how do we know we'll survive? How can we be sure? We simply receive what God gives us. Our salvation doesn't rest on our works, but Jesus finished work on the cross, which is the point that John goes on to make. He says in verse 13, one of the elders in heaven asked him a question. Who are these who are clothed in white? Where did they come from? I said to him, sir, you're the one who knows. And he said to me, these are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They've washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and made them white. Now, if you think about it, that is a really strange image, isn't it? This whole idea, we're kind of used to it, I know, but it is bizarre. This whole idea of washing things in blood to make them white. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? 
But it's a symbolic way of showing you just how effective Christ's death is. If we trust in him for our salvation, he washes us completely clean of all of our sin. And so, just to underline, our confidence is completely in him, not in us. But that being said, there are some things that we need to do to ensure that we are counted among those who survive. Secondly then, those who are sealed persevere until the very end. Christ's blood is wholly sufficient for our salvation. But I do wonder whether there's just a bit more than that going on here in this passage. I think the hint is in the phrase, these are the ones who died in the great tribulation. So it's not just that they trusted in Jesus, it's also they went through suffering for Jesus. That they had a battle on their hands, they had to fight, wrestle, overcome. That they came out the other side bruised and bloodied like Jesus. 1 Peter, it describes how we share in Christ's suffering. Paul says in Colossians that he participates in the suffering of Christ whenever he endures through pain and hardship for him. So I think the image here is not just, I trust in Jesus and I'm forgiven. It is that, but it's also, I stood with Jesus and it was a great tribulation. It involved suffering for him, but I came through it all bloodstained. There's a similar idea in chapter 12, verse 11, where we're told that Christians conquer the devil and they've defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. So those two ideas together again. We're saved by what Jesus has done for us, but those who face suffering, trials and tribulation in this life and overcome by the blood of the Lamb, those are the ones who survive until the end. Even when the suffering comes, as chapter 6 says it inevitably will, they still hold on to Jesus and they make it. It's like the faith that saves is the faith that endures. Third thing, just want to draw out of this chapter. Those who are sealed sing for joy. They sing for joy. The, the redeemed in front of the throne, they're holding these palm branches which speak of victory and joy. Verse 12, they sang, Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. It's striking, isn't it, that the praise in this chapter comes right slap bang in the middle of all of these challenging images of suffering and judgment. Now this is significant because throughout scripture, Praise transforms our vision of the world, doesn't it? In particular, it transforms our understanding of our own situation. In the Psalms, for example, the, the writer often begins by describing that the dreadful situation he's in, how his enemies are triumphing, how God appears to be inactive. And yet, the moment the psalmist turns to praise, his perception and understanding 
is changed. I absolutely love this quote from Eugene Peterson. He says, these people are not only secure, they are exuberant. This is a curious but wholly biblical phenomenon. The most frightening representations of evil, Revelation 6, are set alongside extravagant praise, Revelation 7. Christians sing. They sing in the desert. They sing in the night. They sing in prison. They sing in the storm. Any evil, no matter how fearsome, is exposed as weak and pedantic before such songs. And so, in answer to the question, who can survive? Jesus, through John, is telling us, my people will. And not only will they stand until the end, they will sing in the face of sorrow and suffering. They'll praise in the face of trials and tribulation. The other thing, just to mention about the praise here, is that whilst it does talk of what God has done and is doing, its primary focus is actually future. As we see in the verses right at the end of the chapter, those who have come through tribulation shelter in his presence, knowing that they will hunger and thirst no more in the future, that God will shepherd and protect them, and that God will eventually wipe away every tear from their eye. Listen, regardless of our circumstances right now, the stronger our future hope, the louder our praise will be. In heaven, nothing will diminish our joy or steal our happiness. But even now, we can experience a joy which Peter describes in 1 Peter 1 verse 8 as inexpressible and glorious. Before the throne of God, we'll experience the thrill, the wonder of salvation with eternal joy. But we will not be more secure then than we are right now because the living God has already sealed us for the day of salvation. It's like we have a preservation order on our lives right now. So there may be storms, there might be disasters, there, there could be tragedies along the way. But through it all, we are secure. Absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so, even in eternity, you cannot be more secure than you are right now. And those who know this, they will praise. They will sing for joy. And then fourthly, those who are sealed look to the Lamb for shelter. I love the reversal that the Lamb of wrath from whom all humanity desperately looked for protection has himself become the Lamb who provides protection, keeping them safe. Verse 15, and he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. That is also how the lamb becomes our shepherd. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They'll never be scorched by the heat of the sun. For the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is a wonderful poetic picture of what all have been marked by the blood of the Lamb, all who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, all who have patiently endured through the tribulation of living for Christ in a hostile world, 
can expect. We won't just be protected in the final judgment, but we'll enjoy the protective presence of God for all eternity. Nothing and no one will be able to harm us. All our needs will be provided for. All the pain of the past will be wiped away personally and lovingly by none other than God himself. We'll be safely in the fold of our shepherd, the lamb. Now I think it kind of follows that all those who have this eternal hope will look to Jesus for shelter in this life too. I mean, think about it. Who can save us? Who can deliver us? Can kings and governments, can the rich and the famous, can celebrities and those with great influence? No, everything and everyone that you and I would look to for help, remember from chapter 6, is curled up in a cave wanting the mountains to collapse on them. And so I think all of this really has got to force us into some very serious self-examination. Where am I looking to for shelter? Where am I putting my hope? Because if it is not in Jesus, it's going to come crashing down. It is going to fail us in the end. If we want to survive, and I think probably all of us do, our only hope is to seek shelter in the Lamb. Listen. This whole chapter was written to encourage us that God's protection works. It doesn't protect us with some kind of mystical force field around us so we never face any trouble. No, quite the opposite. We face a whole lot of affliction. But we're protected in so much as if we keep trusting him, we will make it through. So the question is, who will survive? And the answer we get is... Some will. Those who are sealed. Those whom God has saved. Those who are still going. Those who are singing praise. Those who find shelter in the Lamb. And for those people, God's final cleansing judgment can be filled with hope rather than dread. It can now be anticipated with eagerness, not feared with trepidation. And... If this doesn't fill you with hope, I don't know, maybe you're fearful. Perhaps you're worried that God hasn't sealed you for salvation or maybe you won't be able to endure. Here's my simple advice to you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Run to Jesus today. Seek shelter in him and cling to him right now for dear life.